we're trying to do here with this course is to strengthen you to praise and praise him and tell of his excellent greatness. That's the entire motivation of evangelism and apologetics is to, to introduce people to the excellent greatness of Christ uh, because whatever they think is great in their lives and their thinking is not. It's an idol. Anything that uh, would try to rival Christ is not great at all. So we want them to understand the greatness of Jesus Christ, and that's why uh, that's a fitting song to start with. As we um, get back to our study on apologetics and evangelism, we're going to shift uh, our emphasis, uh, even starting tonight and in the coming weeks, uh, to talk about evangelism. Uh, we, are, we have been talking about some apologetic principles. We're going to talk about more of that tonight, do a little review, and, and kind of get a... Uh, a foundation and a starting point here for apologetics and evangelism. But for tonight, or um, as we kind of shift focus, we want to shift into um, talking about evangelism for, for some time uh, because that is really what we're all about here is the evangel, the gospel. Um, so we want to make sure that we are precise with the gospel message, accurate with what it actually is, uh, and see uh, how sometimes our articulation of the gospel can actually lead people astray. You know, we don't want to do that. So we want to be careful in, in our articulation of the gospel. But tonight we're going to kind of make that shift from a couple weeks of introduction that we've had uh, to talk about the proper starting point uh, for evangelism, the proper starting point for uh, the gospel. First, though, let's begin with just a little bit of review from what we covered last time. You We'll probably find that you remember more than you thought you did, um, but let's test that theory, shall we, <laughs> with a couple of questions. Can anybody remember the two verses in Proverbs that outline our twofold apologetic approach as we reason with unbelievers? What two verses guide that? Chuck, you're an A student. Lori, you are too. Let's see if there's somebody, <laughs> give somebody else a chance now, Fishers. Somebody else? Somebody over here on the weak side of the room. <laughs> I'm just goofing around. Claudette. Claudette, you actually moved. You were sitting over on the strong side last time. That's too strong over Yeah, okay. <laughs> I thought, thought you'd bring the scales up a bit over there. Okay, go ahead. Well, I'm going to say that it is the uh, speaking to a fool or not speaking to a fool according to the Bible. Is that the NIV translation that you're... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. The Claudette modified version is what that is. Yeah, that's that's right. That's right. Do you know the reference for that? Um, I'm shooting because I'm looking at my notes. But it's Proverbs 12, 15 and Proverbs 16. Is that true? You were whispering something, Karen? 26.5. 26, 4, and 5. Yeah, 26, 4, and 5. It has those two verses. You were just, you were just kind of, um, kind of uh, mentioning them, uh, referring to them, alluding to them in what you said, that there seems to be a, uh, almost two contradictory statements. Answer, but don't answer. You know? So that's t Proverbs 26, 4, and 5. It says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. And then answer a fool according to his folly, or as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. That's, that's an approach we take to the unbeliever. Um, so here's, here are a couple questions based on that. And here's the first question. What does the Bible mean? Uh, what do the Proverbs mean by identifying someone as a fool? 
And what is the folly of a fool? We talked a little bit about We're going to go down into that a little bit more. Um, yes, Mary. A fool is someone who doesn't believe. A fool is someone who doesn't believe. That's an unkind thing for you to call them. <laughs> I thought that's what you, you said fool. last time. <laughs> <laughs> so you're right back at you, pal. Um, yeah, no, that's what the scripture says. That's exactly right. So a fool is someone who doesn't believe. Yeah, Ron. It's uh, thinking and living and reasoning apart from the revealed world, word of God. Good, yeah. That's good. Thinking, reasoning, apart from the revealed word of God. Yeah, good. Uh, I saw hand over here, I thought. A wiggle, movement. I saw a movement over here. I did, Rebecca. Um, okay. Is something trying to come out? or? I just have the answer written down. I was excited. It is exciting. I like to be a nice student. That whole family is a student. Then we want to talk to you guys. But um, so, yeah. The unbelief. Unbelief is really, if you just, what is, what is folly? Folly is unbelief. It's not, it's not taking God at his word. It's, it's, it's assuming that the omniscient, eternal, infinite God doesn't know what he's talking about. And we know better than he does as creatures, right? So it's not thinking and reasoning according to God's word. That's what folly is, okay? So uh, the height of folly then is to deny uh, the one true God, as it says in Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, back to Proverbs 26.4, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Can anybody tell me in your own words um, what that verse in the twofold approach is prohibiting us from doing? What is that telling us not to do? And don't just quote the verse back to me. <laughs> don't answer a fool according to his folly. Yeah, I know. But what, what, do, what do we mean by that? <laughs> what do we mean by that? Don't argue with him on his level. Okay, good. Don't argue with him on his level. It's kind of like a, a mom, you know, a mom trying to reason with a four-year-old or a five-year-old. You don't get down on the four-year-old and five-year-old's level and throw tantrums, you know, with your child on the floor. That's not what you're supposed to do. Not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> Is that how the A student household does it? <laughs> so we're not supposed to do that. Um, but that, that really is a good picture. Um, and, and again, we're not, I want to be careful. Um, there's, a, there's a concept that I want to pass on to you. This is actually, I think, uh, the term may come from either Van Til or Greg Bonson. Uh, but the term is humble boldness. There is a boldness that we have, and, and what we're talking about is some powerful stuff. But there has to be a humility in the way we speak to people and a meekness in the way we approach them, because we need to recognize that we wouldn't have any of what we understand if God didn't reveal it to us. We would be ignorant and foolish and unbelieving and destined for hell if it weren't for the grace of God. And if we stop, for, if we stop uh, believing that, stop understanding that, if we're not cognizant of that, if we're not always reminded of that, we become arrogant. And we, we start looking down our noses at people as if they're, you fool. You know, we have that kind of an attitude. That, that is so unbecoming, so inappropriate, so um, just, it's just sinful. And we cannot speak to people like that. 
There has to be a humble boldness in the way we approach people. So I want, I want to say that as just kind of a, a qualification, because we're going to speak pretty strongly, especially tonight as we start talking about the fool and his folly. We need to have clarity about the fool and his folly. We can't pull any punches. We need to look it straight uh, in the face and, and call it for what it is. At the same time, as we're talking about this in kind of a sterile environment, when you go out and deal with people, you're looking at people square in the eyes, and you need to be kind and gentle and humble and meek, okay? So we're, we're going to get to more of that. But when we, when we talk with the unbelievers, those who ourselves are under the authority of Christ, um, we need to realize that it is, it kind of is the picture of a, of a parent dealing with a disobedient child. The, the whole world of unbelievers, the, the, what the Bible would call fools, they are like disobedient children living in God's world. They're playing in God's sandbox, and they're not playing well with the toys. They're throwing sand in each other's eyes, and they're ripping toys out of kids' hands, and when you, when you go and correct them, they throw a tantrum. And so as we are like parents, in a sense, because we've been, the truth has been revealed to us, and we realize there are rules in the sandbox, and there are rules by which this sandbox is governed well, and the toys are shared, and there's kindness and, and understanding. And we learn all that from God. So when we approach them, we need to realize that we are coming with, with understanding. We are, we are talking to people that have no understanding. They could be very educated fools, as we mentioned, uh, very intelligent, very uh, wise in the ways of the world. Um, and, and I'm not being disparaging when I say the ways of the world. I'm just talking about a very wise physician or a very wise lawyer or a very wise in their profession, um, whatever it is. But we need to realize that on a spiritual level, with metaphysical issues, they are ignorant, they're foolish, and it's not, a, it's not an excusable ignorance. It's a willful ignorance. It is a, a folly that they choose because they are, as the Bible tells us, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They're making choices. God knows it. We can't always see it. God knows it. They're guilty. And so when we talk to them, we are looking at a, a really a disobedient child. In, in, the, in God's eyes. So, we, though, are under the authority of Christ. Okay, so as parents, sometimes you start, you know, you got that teenager that's snapping back at you and stuff, and so you start bickering with the teenager, and you stop yourself, and you say, wait a minute, I'm the parent here. I'm the adult here. I'm not going to sit here and go back and forth with this uh, rebellious teenager. I'm not going to do that. You've just called yourself to attention. In the same way, we as Christians need to call ourselves back to attention. Wait a minute. I'm under the authority of Christ. And that means something. That means it's going to govern the way I think, the way I reason, the way I talk. Everything is underneath the authority of Jesus Christ. Peter said, uh, this is 1 Peter 3.15. If you have not written maybe 1 Peter 3.14-16, those verses down, um, you should right now. Peter said we're to... Here, I'll just turn there. Uh, you can turn there too if you like. First Peter 3. He says, um, he's talking to Christians under, you know, experiencing persecution. Nero's on the throne, and uh, it's a tough time for the elect. 
Uh, they're, they're enduring persecution. And he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, in verse 14, 1 Peter 3, 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. He's referring back to the promise of the Lord in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. You'll be blessed. Have no fear of them. Now, that's not a suggestion. It's not trying to just comfort you when you're scared. That's a command. We are not to have fear of the world. We're not to have fear of unbelievers. Nor are we to be troubled. But, verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Another, another way to translate that, and I think the NAS translates it this way, sanctify Christ in your hearts as Lord. That is, set him apart in your heart as Lord. That is, there's going to be no other. You set him apart. He alone is Lord in your heart, not anybody else. His thinking, his worldview, his version of the truth, his knowledge, everything, that is what sets your course. And no other, no other uh, version of reality that's spun from the rest of the world. So he says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That is, sanctify him. Elevate him to the topmost authority in your minds. He um, is just as much Lord of our minds as he is of our mouths and all of our conduct. Okay? So that is to say, your thinking, your imagination, your dreaming, all of that stuff is under his purview of his lordship. You can't just think whatever you want to think. That's hard for us to get our arms around. We, we like to have a little private space in our head for whatever we want to think about. And no, there is no inch in our lives, metaphorically speaking, there is nothing in our lives over which Christ has not said, mine. That is mine. I bought it with my own blood. Okay? So he is Lord. And he's just as much Lord of our minds, our thinking, and our reasoning as he is of what comes out of our mouths, as he is of our conduct. Everything is his. So his lordship governs not only our answer, but he also commands our need to provide an answer. Right? He commands our preparation to give an answer. As Peter continues, we're to always be ready or prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that's in you. That means we have a stewardship here. We have a responsibility to study and learn to answer. And that's why you're here tonight, I'm assuming, is because you know Christ wants you to be prepared. Christ, Christ has called you to follow his great commission in the church and through the church. That's why you're here, is to get prepared and to understand how we're going to do this. Peter continues, the Lord Christ commands us to prepare so that we can provide informed answers, and he commands even the manner of our answer, not just the content of it, not just the reasoning of our answers. He commands the way we answer. We answer with gentleness and respect. Another way to translate that is meekness. We are meek with people. That's back to that humble boldness comment. We're meek with people. We're gentle with them. And we're respectful. Maybe not of, I mean, we're not trying to bow to their worldview. Uh, their worldview is nonsense. And we're going to expose that. But as far as a person, we're going to respect them as a creature made in the image of God. We're going to respect that person as a potential convert, as a potential brother and sister in Christ. 
as a potential occupant of an eternal home in heaven. That's how we're thinking of these people. So we're going to think and we're going to answer in terms of meekness, but also in terms of respect. And then verse 16 says they're having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, we might say our good behavior because of Christ. It's Christ that's governing everything, our thinking, our behavior, our manner, everything. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And again, that is kind of what we're doing in this apologetic task. We want, we, and it's not, again, it's not to be unkind, but it's so that the unbeliever will be demonstrated to be wallowing in folly. We want them to see that their slanders are baseless. And they, they are coming away from that conversation. They may not show it. They may not demonstrate it before you. But we want them to go away ashamed that they dared to slander someone who is walking righteously because of Christ. Okay? In other words, our conscience is clear because we have submitted ourselves entirely to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. With our minds, we have set Christ apart as Lord. No other authorities are allowed to govern our thinking, not the culture, not philosophies, not certainly not the fear of man. There is no Lord but Christ. And that means we need to study. We need to prepare. So we're always ready to give an answer for everybody who asks, anyone who asks for a reason, for an apologia, a defense for our Christian faith. We... Um, we do not articulate to people a blind faith. We don't, we don't articulate to people some existential leap into the great unknown, into the blackness, and hope God catches us. That's not what we're telling people about. Our faith is a reasonable faith. And it's not just the most reasonable faith among many options, many solid options. It is the only reasonable faith. It's exclusive in being reasonable, okay? Christians are the only people on the planet that can provide an adequate reason, an apologia, a defense for the hope that's within them. Because only the Christian faith provides, as we mentioned last time, only the Christian faith provides the preconditions of intelligibility. Only the Christian faith provides adequate, sufficient causes for everything that we see, all morality, all laws of the physical universe and then non-physical universe, all laws of the material and immaterial world, only the Christian worldview provides the reasons for all of that. So that means back to Proverbs 26.4. We dare not argue as if the Christian faith is only possible. We don't, we don't dare argue as if it's even just more probable than others or highly likely we, we dare not reason with the unbelievers if the Christian worldview is just one among many acceptable ways of thinking. We dare not allow the unbeliever to frame the argument or set the ground rules for the conversation. We don't let the unbeliever present himself as a neutral, unbiased pursuer of facts. They're not. The unbeliever, get this, the unbeliever is not neutral. The unbeliever is not neutral the unbeliever has a pre-commitment to his sin. Okay? Men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Okay? They are not morally neutral. They are bent towards sin. So when you're talking with an unbeliever, as, as 
erudite as they seem, as educated as they are, as calm and reasonable as they sound, if they are an unbeliever, if they have not bowed the heart to Jesus Christ and called him Lord and Savior, um, well, that person is not neutral. And they are actually bent toward their sin. Okay? So you need to talk to them knowing that. He's actively suppressing the facts that God has plainly showed him, Romans chapter 1. So we don't take the unbeliever at his word. We take the unbeliever at God's word. Okay, so what about the second verse in Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, that twofold approach? Second verse says, Proverbs 26, 5, let's see, it says, Answer a fool as his folly deserves, or according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Okay, so in that second verse, can anybody tell me, in your own words, what the second verse in that twofold approach is exhorting us to do as we reason with unbelievers? What are we being exhorted to do to answer a fool according to his folly, or as his folly deserves? Yeah, Brett? Try, try and help him to understand uh, where, where the fallacies are in his thinking um, so that so that he, uh, he can be led to salvation. Okay, good. Good, so we're going to, this is a great postmodern word, um, we're going to deconstruct his worldview. Okay? We, we are. We're going to deconstruct his worldview. That's exactly what we're doing. And I don't know if you remember, but last time we talked about that as an indirect way of reasoning. A direct way of reasoning would be your worldview is wrong, and here, you know, and boom, 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 direct in his face, telling him everything that he has not come to understand himself. We're going to, you know, just hear him talk and start to just expose unargued biases and presuppositions and everything that he believes that's totally errant, and then start from there and then build up to show him how he got to what he just said to us. That's direct argumentation. That's direct reasoning. We're going to do indirect reasoning. We're going to start with what he gives us, and through some steps we talked about, and, you know, by the way, those steps are no, by no means, um, you know, you necessarily need to go in order. Sometimes you'll start at step three and go back to step one and then to four. You know, you just, depends on the conversation. But there's some steps we'll take to try to help them from where they are to where we are. Okay? So we're going to walk them indirectly from what they've said and start to deconstruct or show the fallacy of their thinking and the, the, the basically the corrupt and inadequate nature of their worldview. Okay? Anybody? Am I getting glazy looks or am I getting uh, uh, looks of clarity and understanding? Uh, yes, Christy. Um, so when you're doing this, do you, do you necessarily have to be having some sort of a conversation specifically about what they believe, or can you respond this way? I'm just, I just had lunch with my dad who's not a Christian. <laughs> yeah. And he made a comment. I didn't say anything at the time because I, I just, most of the time, just don't say anything because it just doesn't seem worth it. But, <laughs> but it wasn't a comment of religious, like he wouldn't have thought of it as a religious comment. Right. It was. It was an attack on me. And can I use this? to address that, or do you wait to be asked? Because, like, first Good, yeah. three says, Great. you know, <laughs> someone who asks you. Great question. Great question. So, um, yeah, we're not going to sit around in silence and just wait, okay? That is, in First Peter 3, it is saying, when they ask you, you answer. But that doesn't, that doesn't, you know, say we have to sit in the corner. 
until we're asked. Letting this little light in mind shine, you know, we gotta, we we can um, go on the offensive, and you can do it in this way. And this is like, you're anticipating actually something in my notes that comes later on. So if this is repeated, it's her fault. Um, but uh, you basically, what's that? I need the review. I need. The review. <laughs> yeah, right, over and over. Um, so the 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 really good thing about what we're going to be describing here. Um, is that every subject applies. This is God's world. In him we live and move and have our being. And so does the unbeliever. And so since this is God's world, every single fact is God's fact. Every single fact becomes a starting point for a conversation. Okay? So we just need to grow in becoming skilled in doing that. Um, you go and... and um, I say, say you watch a movie with your dad or something, and, and he remarks on the great CGI and Star Wars or whatever it is, and you say, you know, where do you think that creativity comes from? You just start, you start there. Or you, you go and listen to the symphony, and you see the, the beauty of music and, and the, the fact that we all recognize beauty. Hey, Dad, why do you think we all seem to recognize excellence in music and beauty and yet, there is no, like, set of rules about what qualifies as beautiful music. We just kind of all intuitively recognize it. What do you, where do you think that comes from? I love these uh, comments, and especially it's, it's wonderful during an election year, um, but where this candidate is so wrong, this one is right. Look at the, and I just, whoa, time out, time out. You're using language like right and wrong. That's very interesting. Where do you, where do you come up with that? According to your worldview, according to what you believe, are you telling me that you believe there are transcendent moral absolutes that we all must adhere to? <laughs> <laughs> or are you just saying they're socially constructed or individually constructed? Because, boy, that would be such a relief if I could make up my own reality. And then there is no right and wrong, and that candidate is neither right nor wrong, neither is that candidate. <laughs> So you can, go from, you can go from any starting point, any conversation becomes a springboard for having a conversation that deconstructs our worldview. And they don't ever see it coming. It's awesome. <laughs> so good luck with that. Um, but we'll, but we're going we're gonna to continue going over the, over the spring semester, this whole course, and, and kind of unpacking some of those things and, and really fleshing this out, you know, having some conversations. Maybe even get Brett up here and we'll do some, some uh, role playing. He makes a great unbeliever. I'm, I'm teasing, but it's kind of true. He's, he's, got a, he's got a very, very sharp mind. It's hard to keep up with him. So, okay, so um, where I saw some hand, yeah, Bruce. You know, one thing to think about, and as you're addressing, you have to be careful you know, how you say it. But silence means that you agree. Yes. And so you have to be careful with that, because if you're not saying anything, they assume you agree with it. Silence comes across as affirmation. Oh, we wish we could just be the silent, friendly Christian. But when we do that, in the presence of a, of a Christ-hating, anti-Christian worldview, that's sinful affirmation. We need to speak. We need to speak for our Lord. And I just saw a hand go up. She's like, in every situation? 
there are some situations maybe where it's appropriate to be wise and calculate. So I don't want to make a everybody's going to go off to tomorrow morning and get fired from their jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Travis said, <laughs> you're going to say though. Well, I was just going to say, you know, when at Thanksgiving, um, you know, just being around family of unbelievers, um, it seems they look at it as hurtful. Anything, you know, that's so hurtful. Mm. Why would you say that? And I'm thinking about particularly my mother said, you know, we brought up some conversation. She said, well, what, uh, at least I'll get to see, you know, her parents and all of these people that she's known throughout her life when, when they die. And I was just, you know, and I know my <laughs> sister's eyebrows are raised. And, you know, it's just like, oh, because I've gone off yeah. the deep end here. So they're all worried that I'm going to say something hurtful. Yeah. And I am too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I know. And sometimes in a, in a setting like that, um, you know, I don't want to get uh, chase too, too many rabbit trails on this because there are a myriad of situations we find ourselves in. But there with family, Thanksgiving turkeys served and someone just drops that anti-Christian bomb and you're like, <laughs> and so you just have to stop and pray and say, Lord, is this the time? Or is it wiser maybe to approach this person in private and say, because that wouldn't be silent. That, I mean, that wouldn't be silent affirmation. If you go to them in private and, and then start to say, hey, listen, I heard you say thus and such. And I just, just can I challenge that for a second? Because I, that really, I, I just want to know where you, where you get that. It was just and so hurtful. It was just so hurtful. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that but it is hurtful to my lord and savior jesus christ who bought and paid for me with his blood he died for me and you said something that was was really offensive to christ he can take it i'm just a little bit wounded <laughs> but but honestly that that sense of i mean that that is the biggest uh, we have we have the most thin-skinned culture um i think that's ever existed on the planet right they cannot handle anything and I think, it, I think it goes to show the fact that they don't have a worldview that can explain anything. So they're so sensitive. Because anything you say might peel away the thin veneer of a bankrupt worldview. And they know it. So just, you know, I, I don't know. It's, we have to be really gentle and wise. And I certainly don't have all the answers for that right now. But we'll work it through. Yes. Um, Will you be addressing farther on in the lesson how you approach people like Mormons? We have a lot of Mormons in our family, lovely people. And I'm thinking especially of my sister-in-law. And when we talk to her, she, she thinks, even though we've talked to her, she thinks that she believes the way we do. And most of the time, you're just talking, and she'll be, you know, she'll be agreeing on everything. And I know that, or, you know, she seems to be agreeing on everything. And so will you be addressing how you talk to somebody like a Mormon who, who truly, they truly think that they're agreeing with you and that, and it's really difficult. You just go around right. in circles with them. Yes. Good. <laughs> we're, we're going to, the thing is, there, there are so many, and, and a lot of apologetics courses or books or whatever will do that. They'll try to categorize, they'll try to list and categorize every single ism and schism and belief system and all that kind of stuff and tell you, okay, here's your strategy for dealing with this person, that person, this. 
what I'm going to do is try to boil it down to basically three ways of thinking. And the Mormons fall into one of them. Okay? The religious non-Christian. Okay? So we are going to get to that. And, and as we go through and have specifics about Mormonism, um, you know, I've also, there was a family that I worked for in North Carolina that were Mormon. And uh, so great, great conversations. And I, I got a good education in Mormonism from that. I, can, I think I can help you with some of that. Um, and if there are other different ones that are kind of dominant in our community, we can talk about those. But you're going to find that as we go through this, you can, you can handle everything. You can handle absolutely every kind of unbeliever. Whether it's a religious unbeliever, a non-religious unbeliever, this is powerful stuff that's really going to help equip us to deal with every kind of person we come across, Mormons included. Okay, so the answer is yes, and that's a further elaboration. Yeah, Melissa? So you said the word fact earlier, and that, you know, arguing facts and presenting facts and that kind of stuff. I'm just curious how there, there was a huge surge after the Trump inauguration mm -hmm. on the fact, the word fact being defined. <laughs> um, I don't know how many of you know about that. But for those who don't, essentially, Trump reported that a certain number of people attended his inaugural address, and it was contradicted that they didn't attend it, and that it was presented as fact, and it was, what was the word? It was alternative, alternative fact. But then Merriam-Webster tweeted their fifth definition as a fact is a piece of information presented as having objective reality. And that's, that's not a fact. But that's in the Merriam-Webster definition, and I that's know. what they tweeted, and that's kind of made... That's what my happen. kids are being taught at school. Exactly. And that, so how do we... I mean, obviously we all believe in facts here, but how do we argue with a culture that doesn't believe in absolute truth, doesn't believe in fact? Stick that's around, correct. Alyssa. Okay. <laughs> Stick around. Because we're, we're getting to all that. Okay. You know, that's, you're, you're right. There is a, <clears throat> there, we, have a, we have a challenge in front of us. But we have a God that can address any challenge. And if we just think his thoughts after him, we're going to be able to address all these challenges too. Even the challenges of our culture. And you're going to find that actually they're pretty weak. They're just, it's just, it's just a lot of weakness. And that's what you're seeing in a lot of the sensitivity and, and the, the bite back is just a weakness, a fear. They have a fear of your dogmatism and your clarity, your clarity and your conviction. They call conviction now arrogance and they call facts opinions and opinions facts. And they, they don't even know how to define their words. They don't even know how to define their gender. So, what do you what do you expect? So we're we're gonna and, and again this is not this is not I'm not gonna teach you anything here that is gonna so you can walk in have a five minute conversation and then walk away from that conversation and say done I just I just I just proved everything settled everything no some conversations you have are gonna be those momentary conversations that you can help to um, take you know move the ball a little bit forward and. Or deconstruct some or maybe present the gospel some conversations are going to be happening over weeks or months okay so this isn't uh, this isn't for you to go and win the debate or win the argument in the moment uh, we're not going to come up with a trick for that this is this this while we live our lives here on earth God gives us a certain number of relationships we're going to use those relationships and the stewardship we have of this gospel we're going to use that to the best of our ability as God gives us strength and, and ability.
Okay? You got that fact? <laughs> I love true facts. I like true That's a fact. It's a Okay, so okay, so don't <clears throat> So um, okay, so the second the the second verse in the twofold approach to uh, is exhorting us, uh, as Brett said, to deconstruct the unbeliever's worldview. A anybody want to elaborate on that, or anybody remember any of the steps? <clears throat> okay, you're going to look at your notes and start to spin them. Let me, let me, before you do that, let me just give you a, a mess of metaphors here. We're going to, we're going to, as we talk to the unbeliever and we use these steps, we're going to blow away all the smoke of an unbeliever's smoke screen. Okay. A lot of times when they're talking to us, they're blowing a smoke screen up in front of us and they want us to not see clearly. So they're going to do a lot to muddy the waters and fog the air. We're going to blow that away. We're going to also, this is a mix of metaphors I said, so we're going to knock the legs out of, off the stool on which the unbeliever sits so confidently as a scoffer. Okay? We're going to pull away leg one and they may teeter a little bit and then we're going to pull away leg two and they're going to come crashing down. Okay? We are taking captive every thought to bring it into obedience to Jesus Christ. And we're going to reveal that the objections, the arguments that this unbeliever makes against the Christian faith and to resist the claims of Christ, even, even the most philosophically robust and complex of arguments and claims like maybe Platonic philosophy, his arguments are really, even though they look strong and powerful, they're really nothing but a paper tiger. It's just a, a house of cards, and it looks big and impressive, but remember, it's built on a, a bunch of cards. And once you blow the wind of the truth, God's word is just going to blow that all away. All right? Keep in mind, we're not trying to persuade the unbeliever. It's not our job. We're not here to persuade. We're here to answer his objections. What's the difference? We're called to answer the unbeliever, not persuade him. Persuade him. Uh, persuading, or, or we could call that biblical terms, is conviction. Conviction, bringing conviction, that's exclusively the Holy Spirit's work. It's not our work. So let me ask this question just as an aside. Um, when you understand it's not your job to persuade, but to answer, does that provide you with a sense of relief in this? Why or why? Why is that? Why does that relieve you? You're, you're not out, out for a goal. You're out to present facts and information. It's up to them to receive that. So you're, you're not trying to blow them up. You're trying to feed them little at a time. Okay, so good. You're trying to feed them with information that they had not heretofore considered. And, and they, it's theirs before God to do with what they will. They're going to answer to God for it. Okay? Uh, I, let's, uh, were, were you raising your hand? Yeah, just that you can't persuade people. Okay, you can't persuade people. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so it's a sense of relief that I, yeah. I'm not being called to do the impossible, right? Uh, Josh, and then we'll go around this way. Yeah, if, I mean, ultimately, if, if you're talking to them and if they die and you're fearful that they ended up in hell, you're, I, it's, you, you can know it's not because I didn't think of a really convincing argument. It's, it's on me that I couldn't do that. Right. So you don't have to worry about it. Right. Their salvation is not up to me. That is a relief. That is a relief. That's something that's between them and God. It's their responsibility to believe, and God must do the initiating work. But it's not. It's our job 
to be obedient, to proclaim the truth, to you know give it an answer. Yeah, good. Uh, yes, Maggie. I think by calling it a job, like you just said, it really kind of puts um, into correct categories what who God is and who we are in all of huh, this. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about apostles this morning. We're messengers. I mean, our job isn't to do the the act that only the Holy Spirit can do. To yeah. take that on would be to take the wrong role. Yeah, good. So when we step out of our role and place somebody else's position, in this case, God's position, oh, well, man, we just find we cannot fill those shoes. And so no wonder there's a nervousness about the task. No wonder there's a, a intimidation. I, and I've, I've personally experienced this in my younger days as a Christian, trying to persuade unbelievers. And I found exactly what Brett said, the will is the most powerful thing on earth. <laughs> it's harder than diamonds. And you cannot break it. Try as you may. Um, it's, it, it's a very hard thing to persuade. It's an impossible thing to persuade. It's something that only God can do. So, yeah, good. So we just got to do our job and play our, play our position. Uh, Ron. I think you, when you uh, answer them, what you do is expose the foolishness of their question. In other words, when you confront them with a question, not answer them, but you confront them with a question of some foolish question or a statement that they said. For instance, they might say, um, well, I don't, I had someone say this. They said, I'm good. I don't need that. And used to, I would have not known where to go with that. Yeah. And so my first reply was, I said, well, why would you say you're good? Great question. And she said, well, the reason is because I'm always very nice to people. I treat them very good, and I'm always real nice to them and treating them nice. I said, well, that's nice, but I said, what was it that Jesus said to the man that came to him? He said, good master, what may I do that I could be, that I can inherit the kingdom of God? And he said, why do you call me good? There's none good but one. And when she said that, then she said, well... She didn't want to talk anymore. <laughs> but that was okay because it it, and it 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 cleared that it blew that fog away for that question of how silly that question was. Yeah, that's how right. How silly that statement was. Right, and and when she chooses to exit the conversation, mm -hmm. that's her choice. Mm -hmm. She's turning and running, and 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 that's I mean you chasing her down won't do any good. <laughs> but but there are some ways that you can. You know, you can answer that question. Like, let's, uh, I love the way the masters approach. They have, they say, hey, let's, you're good. Let's take the good person test. You know, let's run through. And basically, they're just going to go through the, the law, uh, the Ten Commandments. And they say, you know, have you ever in your life ever done, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, putting them up to the, um, uh, the lie detector test, you know. And oh, man, they squirm. You know, they squirm when you start to press them, not just on the external facts of, like say, thou shalt not murder, but now the internal facts, have you ever been angry, ever, with anybody in your life? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> thou shalt not steal. Have you ever stolen anything? Oh, no. Really? Never falsified a form? Never taken anything from your employer that didn't belong to you? Um, when you were a kid, never stole a penny, huh? Really, you were that good. Well, and their conscience is convicting them as you're talking. Their conscience is your ally in that conversation. So that's, that's really good. Yeah. Um, 
So we went through just real quick. Boy, we're still in review. <laughs> that's it's cool. a good review. Don't that's ask cool. any that's more right. questions, Travis. Don't ask any more questions. But aren't the questions fun? They are awesome. talking about, so I can't not do that. You just have to like make more time. Anybody got one of those time slowing down machines on your watch or something? Like you see in the movies or whatever. All right, so dead battery. Dead battery. Yeah, that's a good. Someone kill that better. Okay, so um, so here's the method of answering a fool is his folly deserved. We ran through this really quickly last time. I'm going to run through it quickly again, just to kind of instill it in your mind. But um, we're going to unpack this over time. So don't worry if you're not getting it all right now, okay? Step number one, we're going to expose the arbitrariness of the unbeliever. Uh, the arbitrariness of the unbeliever. We're going to expose that to show them that they're arbitrary in their thinking. Um, and, and their arbitrariness is, is to reveal that their, their thinking is prejudicial against truth, against God, against Christ, against his word. And their prejudice against him is by nature arbitrary. Okay? They have no good reason to oppose God and his word. And if you press for the reason, they have to reveal, well, the reason I am opposed to God and his word is because I'm a sinner and rebelling against him. That's really the only reason that they're, and it's not a good reason. So any explanation they give uh, is arbitrary by nature. Now, step number two, we're going to not only expose the arbitrariness of their, their thinking, we're going to expose their, un, their unargued philosophical biases. So uh, we're going to expose their, the unbeliever's unargued philosophical bias. So as an example, we pointed to the unargued anti-supernatural bias that dominates our schools today. So the idea is, well, we know miracles don't happen. Okay? That's the bias. And that statement reveals an anti-supernatural bias. It's an unargued bias. And they can't get away with that statement in the conversation you're having with them because you're educated to know, hey, wait a minute. You didn't argue for that. You didn't establish that fact. Let's stop for a moment and say, how do you know that? It's just like Ron does. That little Socratic method. How do you know that miracles don't exist? How do you know that everything we know by, we know by observation? Science is not able to answer all questions. Okay, especially, particularly, most uh, pointedly, science cannot answer metaphysical questions. Questions having to do with uh, spiritual reality, okay? Um, questions having to do with right and wrong, because science can only deal with what is observable and repeatable. Okay? So, that's, this is just a review. We're going to expose their unargued philosophical bias. Step number three, we're going to provoke some dialectical tension. And that's okay if you're making the unbeliever in front of you feel a bit tense, a bit agitated. Uh, that is the job. That's what we're trying to do is just provide a little bit stir in the water a little bit We're trying to provoke it so that they feel this tension. We need to help the unbeliever see this conflict in his thinking because Whether they acknowledge it or not, and this is again back to this sensitivity. I, oh, I'm so hurt by that statement uh -huh, uh -huh. You know that whole thing that, There's a that reveals that there is a tension that exists and it's just barely underneath the surface just one little comment about truth all of a sudden sends them into a, a tailspin. They cannot handle it. 
But don't you think that's what upsets people? I know in my experience so much with the gospel is because it ha gives an absolute that they think yes. is so mean and they don't like. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're saying, how unfair of you to speak facts to me in truth. You're intolerant. What's that? You're intolerant. You're intolerant. Yeah. Well, just, if you think I'm bad, I mean, wait till you stand before the holy God of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> There's no room for this rebellion. <laughs> we talk about hurt feelings. <laughs> so, we're, there is a tension that exists, and, and you do reveal it by all this hurt and all that kind of stuff. And it exists just beneath the surface of his thinking. We're gonna expose it, we're gonna let them wrestle with it, and that's a good, that's actually not a bad thing, it's not a failure. That's actually a good thing to happen. So, when someone says, we know that all moral judgments are socially constructed, um, right and wrong, that's just a matter of social construction, um, determined by a social unit, whether it's your family or your village, in our case, the nation state. And we answer, oh really? So, Based on your worldview, why was Hitler wrong? What made Hitler immoral? If everything's socially constructed and the Nazis are their own society and they said that it was okay to imprison the homosexuals. And to start with that one in this culture, okay? Start with imprisoning the homosexuals and the, the handicapped and the Jews and go on down the list. Or torturing little children for fun. Based on your worldview, why is that immoral? Let them uh, 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 wrestle with it. That's a good thing. That'll provoke tension in his worldview. His worldview can't answer. That's called dialectical tension, tension in his logic. You know, I'm gonna embarrass you real quick. Nicholas and I were talking the other day about an experience he had. Would you mind sharing that experience uh, in your classroom? Because this is an example of this that he, he worked out in a classroom environment. Do you mind? Sure. Um, <laughs> if you mind, just say, Dad, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> Speak loudly because we need your powerful voice here for. So, in my management class, we were discussing a chapter on ethics and business ethics. And um, whenever you get into that, there's a bit of this going on where the, the whole class is going around and asking a question. So, are there are there fundamental human rights that go that are go across cultures? Um, because that's important when you're dealing with you know the issues of like sweatshops in other countries and you pay lower wages to people in other countries and, and so people were all saying no I think it's all culturally defined and all relative to the culture. Um, so I just spoke up and said there's there are some rights that are fundamental to all humans. Um, and, and the teacher was like, such, such as, and I said, well, the right to not be murdered, to not have your stuff stolen from you, things like that. And then, um, but then there are other things that are more cultural and that you kind of, you do have to tailor to certain situations and thinking. And, um, and then, I, and I said, well, and I'm a Christian, so I believe that the standard that's, that kind of governs all that, that presupposes, is the, the Bible, the Christian worldview, and immediately, people were saying, well, what about the Muslim? How do you oppose that? <laughs> and I kind of went around like that. And I said again, but again, the, the idea that we're having this conversation at all assumes that there is some kind of a standard that um, 
that governs all this. I mean, what if I'm what if I'm a manager at the top level of one of these companies, and I take this this ethical view that um, that I I need to just push my own agenda in business, and that's my ethics. That defines my worldview. And I mean, how which of you can say I'm wrong to run sweatshops in these other countries, and you know somebody dies over here it doesn't affect me. I'm making a profit. So then I kind of went around again. And <laughs> yeah. So it's it's not that the class just dropped to their knees and said, sir, how must I be saved? <laughs> they didn't do that. But the fact that they felt the need to argue and debate, what does that reveal? Dialectical tension. They couldn't stand to let his comment rest because it didn't let them rest. So they're going home and thinking about that. Okay, now, I know he didn't get through the whole gospel. And they didn't bow before him and repent of their sins. And, but listen, that, that, like I said, uh, back to Alyssa, when we were talking there, just engaging. We're, we're not trying to solve this in one conversation. This isn't about one. This is about a lifestyle, okay? A whole lifestyle where we are God's representatives here on earth, proclaiming his truth, his character, his being, and we're calling people to repent to that. And in some situations, we'll only get that. In other situations, maybe there's a student or two that will say, boy, that, that goofy kid had, some, had something to say. I'm going to go and talk to him further. Oh, there he is. He's studying in the student union. Let me go, let me go ask him about that, because that's bugging me. And then you never know where that goes. You right? planted a seed, Trey. You planted a seed. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Not the full seed of the gospel. No, just... just yeah, so I would just be careful with that language because he didn't plant actually a gospel seed. He did just, but well, let's say he picked it a scab. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, we'll go with yours. Planted a seed. St st <laughs> I just lost you, didn't I? I know, I'm just... I'm not good, so stop. I'm writing that What's that? They're painting guts, you know. I know. What was that about? Uh, sometimes I just wonder, like, why did I just say that? So step number one. Back to the notes. Expose the arbitrariness of the unbelievers. Step number two, expose the unbelievers' unargued philosophical bias. Step number three, we're going to provoke some dialectical tension. That's a good thing. Step number four. We want the unbeliever to see ultimately that his worldview has failed to provide the preconditions of intelligibility. This is what exposes his worldview as a fraud, ultimately. And so when we're talking about the preconditions of intelligibility, a condition, a precondition, is something that must be in place uh, in order for there to be what we call intelligibility. That is to say, um, all that gives our life meaning and purpose, all that gives our life a sense of understanding, a sense of origins and eschatology, a sense of beginning and end, uh, everything in our, in our, that gives our lives a, an understanding of what's wrong with the world and then how to solve it. That is everything that a worldview is required to answer, required to provide sufficient reasons for. The unbeliever is unable to provide a sufficient reason for the way things are. Okay? So we don't have to play make-believe with them. 
We're in the world with them, and they need to provide an adequate explanation of the way things are. Okay? And so that's why, once we expose his worldview as uh, a pretender, that it really has nothing, um, that's why this person must repent of his sin and his unbelief. He has to repent of his autonomy. He has to return to the fear of the Lord. He has to bow before the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ because apart from presupposing the Christian God who is revealed in the Bible, it's impossible to prove anything at all. Okay, that's what we came to last time, that the existence of God is proved by the impossibility of the contrary. That is, if you remove God, the biblical God, from the conversation, from the world, it's impossible to prove anything at all. It's impossible to have any kind of a conversation, any kind of rationality, any kind of laws, any kind of right and wrong, any kind of truth, any beauty, any ugliness. You can't have any of it because you've removed the only condition of intelligibility, and it's the triune God. Okay? So we've been... Uh, I've got some time. So we've been taking just a, the first few sessions, as I said, to introduce the course. So we're going to dive into more detail on all of that stuff. So don't worry. Um, but I, wanted, I just wanted to start here at the beginning to give you a little bit of exposure to the kind of thinking that we're going to be learning. And I, this, is, this isn't just like a method or procedure or a bunch of arguments you need to memorize. Um, this is a way, those are helpful. Some of those evidences are helpful. But this is a way we need to think and a way we need to reason, which is faithful to the biblical worldview. So, um, as we keep this discussion going and as we kind of turn the corner and get into an evangelism component of this course, um, I want to ask a question that's going to lead us into that. And we're going to take time over the next uh, few weeks to get clarity on the gospel, talk about proclaiming the gospel and what that's all about, and then come back to some more formal apologetics later. But here's the question to kind of prompt the discussion. What is the starting point of the gospel? And that is to say, when you, when you start a conversation with somebody about the gospel, what is your starting point in your mind for sharing the gospel? And what is the other person's starting point for receiving and understanding and embracing the gospel? And let me just give you a hint. It's the same starting point. Okay? What is the starting point? Leah? Um, the authority of God over everyone. I think, and over them specifically. Okay, the authority of God over everyone, over them specifically, but also ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, good answer. Doris. Sin. Sin is the starting point. Okay. We're a sinner and God's not. We're a sinner, God's not. Okay, so that's, sin is defined by whom? God. God, so we're back to God. So we're back to kind of what she said. So. Yes, we can talk about sin, but we're going to probably go a little bit more fundamental than that and talk about God. The starting point is the Word of God. Starting point is the Word of God. Yes. Okay. Good. Authority of God, Word of God, sin, but it's a sin that's defined not culturally because, um, you know, these days there are a lot of cultural sins like eating meat is now in some quarters a sin. I personally don't see the benefit to humanity in that viewpoint, but some, right. Every night after this session right here, I am hungering for a burger. I don't know, something. I don't know what it is, but I want a burger. Karen. 
What's the starting point for yourself and for the person you're talking to to understand and receive and embrace the gospel? What's the starting point? Who God is and who we are in, in relation to God. Who God is and who we are in relation to God. Great, great answer. Yeah, right. Holiness, holiness of God. Holiness of God, okay. So, okay, I think that, uh, let's, let's close in prayer. No, but... Um, <laughs> So here's, here's what all of you are saying, but I'm going to put it into a proverb. And this is, this is as we ask questions like this about starting points, um, throughout this course, we ask it in various ways. I'm hoping that you learn to answer with one of two proverbs, like Proverb 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Or I like Proverbs 9, 10. If, if I could, you know, weigh one over the other. I'd say Proverbs 9.10. Because that one says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Okay, do you see how, basically, all the answers you gave are summarized and distilled down into this, this principle of the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's Proverbs 1, 7 and Proverbs 9, 10. Yes? I, I just think it's a cool concept because even before sin enters through Adam and Eve, you have fundamentally, Adam should have had a, a, a more proper fear of God even before we get into the situation that we're in where we're trying to reconcile for sin. Right, right. It was, I mean, you can look at, um, you know, we talk about the original sin being that transgression, and that's true. It's a transgression of what God said, thou shalt not, and they did it, and they transgressed. But there were some sins that led up to that, some roots and, and influences there, and you can describe it in terms of a departure from the fear of the Lord a departure from the reverence of God. Ultimately, it's unbelief. It's believing Satan's lies instead of God's truth. All of that was going on in their hearts, becoming discontent with God and what he gave them. How could you become discontent with the entire world before you, garden and work, you even gave him a wife? How could you become discontent? So, so that's, um, you, can, you can look at it as a departure from the fear of the Lord. That's true. Predates the curse, predates the fall. Other come okay. So Proverbs 1 7 or Proverbs 9 10. Either one will do. But how do we let me ask this question. How do we produce the fear of the Lord in somebody else? I Amen. I am so glad to hear that. Bunch of theologians out there. What'd you say? Who said it? <laughs> and, and he said it with he said it with anger. He said we can't. Yeah, Chuck. I should have known it was you. Straight A students. But listen, we we don't. We do not produce the fear of the Lord in somebody else. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Okay. But we do need to realize in this evangelistic task, and we need to realize that in our apologetics, we're unable to produce the fear of the Lord. We're unable to persuade anyone. anyone, anyone. <laughs> we're, we're unable to, um, to persuade them, to convict them. That's the Spirit's job. 
We're unable to regenerate the heart and convert the soul. That is the exclusive purview of the Holy Spirit. But, but, we do model the fear of the Lord in how we reason with the unbeliever. We do model the fear of the Lord in getting the Lord's gospel right. When, we're, when we say, you know, the gospel is this here, and they say, oh no, I take exception with that. Let's, let's, let's cut this part off because that's harsh sounding, and let's take this part off. I don't want to talk about judgment and sin. That's the gospel. And you say, no, I, I, I can't. I am, I am bound by the fear of the Lord to say that that is a misrepresentation of the gospel. The gospel is this, because I fear the Lord. So we model the fear of the Lord and how we reason with the unbeliever in the gospel we preach, how we talk to them. And further, we provide an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to do his job, to bring about conviction, to stop the mouth of the proud sinner, and then provoke thoughtful reflection on the bankruptcy of his worldview. We provide that opportunity with this conversation. And perhaps most importantly, importantly here, we do sow the seed of the gospel. And we do it, we sow that seed fully and accurately so the unbeliever knows enough to embrace or reject Christ. Okay, so that's our job. That's our role in this whole exchange. It's the Spirit's job to convict and persuade, to regenerate and to save. And all of that is what is going to give rise to the fear of the Lord. That's where the fear of the Lord starts, is with God's work in the heart. We cannot produce it. Now, here's another question. Why must the reception of the words of the gospel, the understanding of those words, the embrace of that gospel by repentance and faith, why must that begin with the fear of the Lord? Okay, you want me to repeat the question? Why... So let's take the gospel, receiving the words of the gospel, um, understanding those words, embracing those words in repentance and faith. Take the gospel. Why must the gospel itself begin with the fear of the Lord? Christy? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. So you can't know. I mean, the gospel is news. It's good news. It's a communication, and you can't know it. <laughs> Um, right. Great. Okay, so back to Proverbs 1.7, back to Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Okay? Uh, the beginning, uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What is the gospel if it's not knowledge? What is the gospel if it is not of the wisdom of God, as the scripture often says? Whole, the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So there is something more foundational than the message of the gospel, and it's the fear of the Lord. Now, we're going to give them the message of the gospel. We're going to explain that. But it is the Holy Spirit's job to produce the fear of the Lord by which they can receive and understand and apprehend and embrace and repent and turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ. Do you understand that distinction I'm making? It's what Augustine meant when he said... Remember that phrase? There's a Latin phrase for it, but in English it's, I believe in order to understand. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is, this is Nicodemus's problem when he comes to Jesus and he's questioning him by night. He wants to flip Augustine's statement, and he wants to understand in order that he might believe. Jesus actually called him on the carpet and said, you know your problem, Nicodemus? You don't receive the things we're saying. 
That's your problem, is you've rejected it. And you want to understand in order to believe. And I'm telling you, you must believe in order to understand. And he says, he says, um, he also, he doesn't let him off there. He actually makes his predicament even worse by saying, Nicodemus, if I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe? How are you able to believe if I tell you heavenly things? Answer? You can't. Apart from the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, which he explained earlier in the passage. And yet, Jesus didn't let him off the hook. He commanded him to repent and believe. That's what we do. It's the same model we follow. We understand that the Holy Spirit's work is to bring regeneration and the fear of the Lord, and that they cannot understand and embrace the gospel without it. And yet we call them to believe, because that's our responsibility before God. Alyssa. When you're talking about this, all I can think about is Rahab, because she heard of God, and she heard of what was happening, and she acted out faith before she confessed faith by hiding the spies. I mean, sure, she lied about it, but she, you know... Yeah, we're not, we're not condoning the lie, no. but we are commending the faith. But she, she had faith because she had fear. She, couldn't, she was fearful of the God of Israel. That's right. And hearing that, and then her faith came from that before she even had a confession. Or, yeah. What a great example. That's a great example. And, and notice the rest of the, the people in Jericho. What did they do? Also afraid, what did they do? Fortify, uh, you know, stock up on arrows. <laughs> Fill the pots with boiling oil and all that stuff, right? A lot of good it's going to do when they go march around that wall so they, sometimes. Do they Mormon prep it? What's that? Do they Mormon doomsday, doomsday prep? Mormon doomsday prep. <laughs> well, I think the Mormons actually probably base their preparations on them. Yes, Wes? I just had a question. There's an implication that I'm maybe not understanding. This fear of the Lord implies then that they should have a knowledge of who he is first, uh, to me, I, I, maybe I missed it. Right. So that's a, that's a good point. And, and how are they going to fear the one they don't fully understand? Um, it's, again, it's a mysterious work called regeneration. Um, when the Spirit causes a person to be born again, they're born again with a new nature. And that new nature is one that its first breath is to repent of sin and put faith in Christ. So regeneration takes place. A person is born again. They're born again to a new nature that automatically has, just in a seed form, a theology. It's got a systematic theology. We've talked about this out of Ephesians chapter um, 4. I'll just, I'll just go and read that real quick because it's, it's helpful to remind ourselves. In Ephesians 4, Paul says there... Um, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness or meekness is the word with patience bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace here is the spirit produced unity in every single believer and it's basically the elements of a systematic theology verses four to six there's one body what's that ecclesiology there's one spirit what's that pneumatology just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. What's that? That's eschatology. One Lord. We could call that soteriology or we could call it, um, you know, Christology. Um, one faith. Again, soteriology. One baptism. One God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. When we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, 
there's an imprint of that theology on every single believer. That's why you can go to every believers of every tribe, tongue, and nation, no matter what language they speak, what culture they come from, and they all affirm the biblical truth about those things. They don't understand them fully, but the more they understand, the more they grow in their expansion of those kernel elements of truth, of a systematic theology. Every single believer is united in the Holy Spirit by that. When we're regenerate, that's how, that's what we're regenerated to, that new birth. And the first breath of that new life is to put, is to repent of sin, which is a necessary thing because you have to put faith in Christ. In order to put faith in Christ, you've got to turn from sin. Because Christ brokers nobody who comes to him with sin. He says, I want to take you and my sin. No, that's not repentance and faith. So you turn and put faith in Christ. That can't happen until the Holy Spirit does his work. So they can't even obey the command. They can't fear the Lord until the Holy Spirit does his work. It's an insightful question, and it's important to understand that. And I, I know you've got your look at the clock a lot, but is that, is that saying then that regeneration happens before, Sorry, before you could have, uh, before you would have fear? Rege you would have regeneration before you would have fear, fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord, yes. It's good to know when you're... It's requisite. It's requisite. We need to understand that. We need to understand that that's what we're doing in evangelism. That, that person in front of us that we're talking to, so it could be, you know, your 90-year-old, um, you know, um, Roman Catholic grandmother who's so sweet, so kind, so giving, so loving. But if she holds to the faith that anathematizes the true gospel... Well, what does the Lord say about that? It's a hard thing, you know, and that's why I say, again, we need to kind of approach this with a humble boldness, a gentleness with people, even though we have a very robust apologetic in truth. Brett, you want to say? So when you're saying that the fear of the Lord is the, is the starting point of the gospel, you're not saying that that is where we have to start when we are claiming the gospel. No, in fact, like I said, any fact is fair game. Yeah. For, starting, for starting a conversation. I'm just saying the starting point for embracing or understanding the gospel is the fear of the Lord. But we're going to do it apologetically. We're also going to do it evangelistically. Listen, sometimes you can run into a person and you don't have, there's no need for any kind of apologetic deconstruction of worldview at all. You just, you just start to talk about the, um, you know, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and sometimes they're raised as good Catholic kids and they know oh, they're sinners. They know. They're just like bound by this need to do works all the time. And how, am I, how do I know if I'm ever there? And I, they have no assurance of any salvation. And so you, you step into that where they've already been somewhat prepared. And you step in with the grace of God. Walls come down. The Holy Spirit uses that to, you know, to point, to regenerate them. And they come to the fear of the Lord and embrace the gospel. So... Yeah, there's, like I said, there's not a one-size-fits-all. you got to start here, then do that, then do that, then do that. You know, you take a person as they come. That's what it is to answer them with gentleness and respect. Respect is to take them as they come. Okay? And respect is also when they tell you, I don't want to talk to you anymore, you leave them alone. You know, you say, okay. Can I talk to you again in six weeks? Boy, I wish I had, someone had told me this a long time ago in my life um, because I've, I've not followed everything I'm telling you uh, perfectly. And it's hard. It is hard to do. Um, okay, where are we at in my notes? 
Page one? No. Sounds <laughs> right. Very funny. That wasn't me, you know. Not this time. That's <clears throat> Okay, so um, listen, I'm just going to stop here because I, I think that if I go any further, I'm just going to get into some territory that's... Um, that's that's not helpful. But I, I wanted you to see. I maybe we'll pick it up here next time. Maybe maybe I won't. Maybe I'll scrap the rest of this. And we'll go in a different direction. But what I what I want you to see is that this starting point uh, for the gospel is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord in our own it, it governs our own thinking. The way we're going to have a conversation with somebody that we are accurate about the gospel. That we are not going to reason like an unbeliever. We're not going to allow them to determine how we're going to talk. Um, and also, it's going to govern our behavior. It's going to go govern the kind of words we use. It's going to govern, govern the, the, way, the way we talk to them, um, the gentleness and respect aspects, everything. It's got to govern everything in ourselves. We're modeling that for the unbeliever, and both by our witness and our example, but also by the words that we speak. That's provoking in them, pointing them to the fear of the Lord pointing them to the need for regeneration, pointing them for the need to the need to bow the knee. And so the Holy Spirit will use those words to prompt and provoke regeneration and faith and, and all of that, okay? That's the starting point, is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge.